Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. On February 3rd, a 12-year-old boy was found unresponsive in his cabin at a North Carolina wilderness camp near Brevard. Medics say that despite evidence of CPR having been performed, the boy appeared to have been deceased for some time. The boy had only arrived at the camp a day earlier, and an autopsy revealed his death was not normal or not natural. The Transylvania County Sheriff's Office initially said Trails Carolina Camp had not completely cooperated with the investigation, something the camp later disputed, and WBTV's investigative unit reported they had previously documented claims of abuse and malfeasance from both former participants and a former staff member there. This is not an isolated incident. Other deaths have been reported at wilderness camps across the country. And many former participants at these camps have taken to referring to themselves as survivors. In 2021, one of the survivors of the Trails Carolina camp told WBTV they experienced abusive tactics that were beyond cruel, adding, it's not humane. Yet these camps are part of a trend. Thousands of children are sent each year against their will, often in the middle of the night, to be treated for various illnesses, behavior issues, and addictions. There could be as many as 5,000 of these centers around the world in what has come to be known as the troubled teen industry. So why are parents resorting to sending their kids to these camps? What sort of conditions really exist? What is the treatment like, and what is their success rate? How many or how much training do those, op- do those operating these camps actually have? And are these deaths and complaints the exception to the rule, or are they too frequent to be ignored? We explore those questions and more this hour with Nick Oxner. He is WBTV's executive producer for investigations and their chief investigative reporter. Nick, welcome back. Good morning, Mike. Meg Applegate is co-founder and CEO of Unsilenced. That's a nonprofit serving what they characterized as past, present, and future victims of institutional child abuse at what they describe as the network of unregulated facilities in the troubled teen industry. Meg, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Nicole O'Corin has written about these camps. She's a freelance writer. She wrote recently in The Guardian about them after having spoken with families who had children there. Nicole, thank you for being here. Thank you. And Alan Mortensen is an attorney with the Mortensen and Millen Law. They have represented families in several cases involving residential camps in the state of Utah. Thank you for being with us as well, Alan. Thank you, Mike. So, Nick, I'm starting with you and the latest incident at the Trails Carolina camp. As you you and others have reported, this camp uh, initially was reported as having been not cooperative with the media and certainly not with authorities. Has that changed? Uh, it changed somewhat when the sheriff's office in Transylvania County, when the sheriff's deputies executed search warrants on the camp. What we know on the cooperation front is that the camp refused to give access to either social workers or sheriff's deputies to the remaining children at the camp from the day the boy was found dead on February 3rd until sheriff's deputies showed up with a search warrant on February 6th. It was initially reported what you just said. They prevented access to the sheriff's department. How how is that possible? Why does that not constitute obstruction of justice? 
Well, and, and look, no charges have been filed yet, Mike. And I'm not saying that would be a charge, but that could be a charge. Uh, but in, in addition to not giving either criminal investigators nor social workers with DSS access to the children for three days, um, we're told, uh, they also didn't give investigators or social workers even the full names of the children uh, for, for days until they came in with a search warrant as well. Alan Mortensen, you're the attorney on this panel. Uh, how can you prevent access for law enforcement to a crime scene and prevent access to people who may be potential witnesses to a crime without being guilty of obstruction of justice? Uh, the, the short answer is you cannot. I, I would anticipate that the authorities will be looking at those types of charges. Um, but it also reveals the the attitude of this industry that they are above the law and, and that they can do what they want um, because they've been given permission by the parents um, to, to basically uh, run rogue as, as they as they deem fit. And, and Nick, explain to me why the sheriff's department doesn't didn't just simply walk in. Prevent or not, they well, have weapons. <laughs> Well, because you can't do that. And luckily for us in the United States, you can't do that, right? So they did what you what you have to do in a situation like this is they went and got search warrants and they executed those search warrants. And once they had the warrants that signed order from the court, from the judge saying they could go in, they, they did. And in part, one of the reasons they executed two warrants was one on the location where the boy was found dead in the camp generally, and the other location where the children had been taken uh, after that boy was found dead at the camp. But it took three days to get those warrants. Why? Uh, I don't know specifically, but my guess would be because um, they waited till a Monday to go do that okay. because the boy was found on a Saturday. Alan, you deal with this. In, you have dealt with this in other places around the country. How unusual is this kind of behavior uh, in terms of cooperation with law enforcement? Uh, well, what's frustrating is oftentimes the law enforcement is so deferential to these treatment centers um, that they get bullied. And at least in, in Utah, oftentimes are in rural areas where law enforcement, uh, where they promote these, these facilities as giving jobs to the community and, and undue deference is given by law enforcement uh, to, to, these, uh, to, to these facilities. And that's unfortunate. Nick, what more do we know about this young boy? He's 12 years old. He died on February, I think, the 3rd. What do we know about him? Where was he from? Do we know his name? Have we have we have, have the media been able to talk to his uh, family, etc.? Yeah, we know he's from the New York area. He'd only been at the camp about 24 hours, really less right. than 12 hours. Um, his full name has not been released publicly. I've not used it in my reporting. Um, and uh, we know from the search warrant filed by the sheriff's detectives investigating this case that um, the boy had had a panic attack about midnight before he was found dead. He was found dead around 8, 8 a.m. in the morning. Um, and he'd had a panic attack, and, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, Mike, but we know the kind of contraption in which he was he was sleeping as well. Yeah, well, let's talk about that, because evidently they found him in, I guess, kind of a fetal position, and rigor mortis had already set in, but evidently he was uh, in something that's referred to there a sleeping position or situation called the burrito. Explain kind of that. the burrito. I, I, well, 
it's hard to say technical when we're talking about a thing called a burrito, but um, I, we'll call it a modified burrito or an updated burrito, perhaps. So what we know, and I've been investigating specifically Trails Carolina since May of 2021 was my first story. And so I've talked to a number of people who went to this camp and, um, and, and, and talked to a number of people again in the last two weeks who went to Trails Carolina. And all of them talk about sleeping in the burrito. And I'm probably gonna mess this up a little bit, but it's a contraption where you're basically put in a sleeping bag, that sleeping bag's wrapped in a tarp and uh, strung up on some rope. And then a, a staff member sleeps on part of the tarp. And the goal, I guess, the reason they do this, in theory at least, is to keep uh, the participant from running away. And we know from participants that you're in the burrito for at least the first night that you get there. And I've talked to someone recently who's in the burrito for two weeks, um, slept like that. We know it's it can be hard to breathe, that you can't move. Um, so that's the burrito. So now we have the modified burrito uh, that it sounds like based on the search warrant that was filed by the sheriff's deputies in this case that the 12 year old was in and he was in a bivy sack, so pretty tight sleeping bag in the plastic. Um, but instead of having a staff member sleeping on the tarp, uh, there was a little alarm that would apparently go off if he were to move or try to get out of the burrito. Both Meg and Nicole were nodding in recognition of everything you were just talking about. So this must be it was Meg, good because that means I didn't screw anything up. Really <laughs> but this must be Meg that that must mean that that this is common practice not just there but in lots of uh, of these places. Do they do they compare notes? Do they do they exchange techniques or or is it all coming from sort of a central database of how you treat these kids? You know, I've I, I have actually seen. A lot of different things used across in different wilderness programs, but the burrito is pretty like central to trails. And uh, the amount of survivors that we've talked to that experienced is, is so high uh, that it it obviously was a very big component. And like Nick said, I've heard up to two weeks, it's standard. You're in the burrito every single night. So I would say it's actually pretty specific. And Nicole, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, you've written about this. Uh, you've talked to people who have experienced this and, and wrote about the experience of being in this sleeping situation. Uh, are there not other more effective ways that they could prevent somebody from running away from these camps? Um, uh, so in my reporting, I saw variations on the mm -hmm. burrito. So one person that I reported on, they slept... Um, in a sleeping bag with a tarp over and then two five gallon uh, jugs on each side with water inside. So if they moved at all, if there's any flinching, any any movements during sleep, the jugs would, would shake and people would come over and either put them in a restraint or figure out what was going on. So this let's, be, let's, be, let's, let's be clear about this. No, nobody yeah. sleeps in one position all night long. I, I, I wouldn't no. think not many people do. So if you're going to turn over from one side to the other, or from your yeah. back to your stomach, it's going to set off some sort of an alarm and they're going to come and further restrain you. Yeah, often because the, the knee jerk reaction of the workers is that this person's trying to escape. And a lot of the times, um, from my experience and Meg, you can correct me. Um, my, my sample size is probably much smaller than yours with your organization, but from my experience, they, um, a lot of people were just, it was just what happens the first two weeks you're yeah. there. You're in that place, no now matter what. Uh, Alan, this uh, we're going to get into this as we go through the program. Much of this treatment sounds uh, un, unreasonable at best, inhumane at, at worst. 
uh, they don't do this to people in jail. Why would you do that to a 12-year-old kid? Uh, that's that's one of the problems is that there are no constitutional rights given to these people. If they're in the juvenile court system, they have a guardian ad litem, they have an attorney, their parents can fully participate. Um, any the, the public has some oversight. There's a judge. Uh, law enforcement's involved here. They they take all of that away. And, and it violates the cruel and unusual punishment clause of the Constitution. It is, it is, there's so many red flags here that all their, all their rights are stripped away that a normal child has in the, in the juvenile court system. And it's like we third party it out where they can be tortured and hopefully through this trauma can come back normal. Is that, that because, is that because these people are, these children are voluntarily committed by their parents? They don't go through the criminal justice system. They don't go through the courts. They, they contact these private companies. The private companies come in and take the child off their hands, put them in these camps. Is that why that happens? Yeah, it happens because the, the parents are, are at a loss. The parents don't understand what's going on inside these facilities. Uh, and, and they're just told by these educational consultants or whoever that this is the nirvana where they're gonna, their child's going to return as, as a normal child, whatever that is. And, um, and, and they're stripped of all their due process rights uh, that, that they would be entitled to if they were in a school district and or a juvenile court system. Nick, uh, do we know why this young boy was put there in the first place, why his parents chose to send him there? I've got 35 seconds. No, I, I, there's not really much um, public reporting yet. I don't have any confirmed details about why he was at trial. Have the, have the parents said anything about their child's death yet? And the FBI was involved in this at some point. Why did the FBI become involved in this incident? Yeah, they were reviewing the forensic devices seized from the camp. Okay. Nick Oxner is with us. He's been reporting uh, on this uh, situation up at the Trails Carolina camp and and the outcome of what happened there when a 12-year-old boy died in their custody uh, on February the 3rd. He's here along with Alan Mortensen, an attorney who deals with these kinds of cases in Utah. Meg Applegate is co-founder and CEO of Unsilenced, an organization that helps victims of these places. And Nick Ox- uh, and uh, Nicole O'Coran is right has written about this for The Guardian. We're coming right back. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7, WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about the troubled teen industry and specifically about troubled wilderness youth camps, which have proliferated across the country. And an incident here in North Carolina that occurred on February 3rd in which a 12-year-old boy lost his life just 12 to 24 hours after being uh, put in one of these camps. On February, that happened on February the 3rd. On February the 12th, the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services ordered the camp to stop accepting new participants while they conducted their investigation. And four days later, on February the 16th, all the children at the camp were removed, Nick, and taken into the custody of uh, Transylvania County DSS. Why were they simply not returned to their parents? Why did DSS take them? These were all voluntarily submitted individuals, correct? Well, what I've now learned, uh, and as you're getting my new reporting in real time, I haven't even reported this on WBTV. What I've now learned is that those uh, children um, were basically released to their parents and their parents placed those children at other camps 
uh, elsewhere. Uh, but we know from Trails Carolina, actually, in one of their statements that their parents were essentially told by DSS uh, on a Thursday night, hey, come get your kids by Friday morning or we're going to take them into DSS custody. What happened was the parents came, they took the kids and they put them in another uh, in another program. Nicole, you've written about this. Uh, why are these kids in these camps? What have they done that their parents feel they cannot? They have no other choices. Um, that's a really great question, and it's very it's very taboo. So a lot of parents don't want to talk about why they send their kids because there's so much shame around it. The parents that I spoke to were in absolute. They used the word desperation. They were afraid that their child was going to either arm themselves or one of the other children in the home if they didn't do anything, or they were afraid that their own behavior and trying to deal with their children's behavioral issues would get out of hand as well. So they knew that they needed some sort of separation. There isn't a space between um, a psychiatric hospital or um, or the juvenile, um, just any, like, or the prison system between this kid having behavioral problems that are too much for the home. So in a moment of desperation, this parent will go onto Google and look for the, the best option. And the company who has the highest marketing department, um, the most money in the marketing department will be ranking the highest on Google and that's where they'll send their kid. And they don't know the questions to ask. They don't know what expected outcomes are because none of these places are listing them. There's not a lot of data. There's not a lot of accreditation. And even the different accreditation programs, um, for instance, one that I found out this morning, the Association for Experiential Education is supposed to be the top one. And Trails Carolina is accredited with them as being one of the safest places. So what are you supposed to do when the information is so confusing and you're already sleep deprived and desperate and scared? Nick, a letter sent uh, by North Carolina DHHS to Trails Carolina stated, quote, the Secretary of Health and Human Services has determined that the character and degree of conditions at Trails Carolina are detrimental to the health or safety of the children in your care. What conditions were they referring to in that letter? Do we know? Well, we don't really know because we've gotten some information from the Department of Health and Human Services, but we haven't gotten a lot of information from the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, and Mike, the other reason we don't really know that and why this came as somewhat of a surprise is because DHHS is required to inspect Trails Carolina and other facilities like it once every 12 to 15 months, but we know from the inspection records that they've not been doing that. And even when DHHS has gone to inspect Trails Carolina, it's not found, it's always found violations, but it's not found grave violations that would cause DHHS to do much of anything, including even after a child died at Trails in 2014, because we shouldn't forget, this is not the first child to die at Trails Carolina. So, Meg, you run an organization called Unsilenced uh, with deep experience in dealing with children who experience these facilities and the aftermath of when, when they come out. And in the camps that have run into trouble, where they have experienced the death or deaths of these young people among children in their care, or whose campers have characterized the treatment as being abusive, what conditions have you found in these camps? Oh, wow. Um, that is going to be a very wide spectrum. We're seeing things from alleged sexual assault all the way to removal of food and water as a form of punishment. 
Uh, we see, obviously, you've heard about the burrito. Uh, we see psychological abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, violent restraints, uh, medication uh, by way of, um, you know, restraining someone and sticking them with a needle in the butt to give them hell at all to like, you know, restrain them physically. Uh, it's, it's pretty horrendous how those kinds of things could be alleged in these facilities, yet we call it healthcare. It's, it's pretty egregious. Alan, your law firm has dealt with this on several occasions. And from what I've read, at least yesterday, Utah seems to be the epicenter of uh, a lot of these uh, wilderness uh, camps. Are, are the, is the treatment and are the conditions and are the experiences that these campers go through pretty much the same in all of these? Or are there some good places that really have trained people and do good work with these young people? Uh, unfortunately, I only get involved when there's been something horrible happen. And so my experience has been that they're all pretty bad. Um, because again, they, they've allowed a situation where a child has either been, uh, has died because they haven't been given medical, proper medical care, or has been raped because they haven't been properly supervised or has, um, or has committed suicide because that's the only way to get out of these places. Mm. Uh, Nick, in another move by this camp, Trails Carolina in North Carolina, following the State Department of Health and Human Services removing all of the remaining children, the camp issued their own statement accusing regulators of having, quote, threatened and intimidated parents or the 18 remaining children at the camp, calling the move, quote, negligent and reckless. How did they justify that statement? Well, that's what we get back to talking about with the DSS calling the parents saying, come get your kids or they're going to come into our custody. Um, according the only real timeline we have really is from the camp. Uh, and according to the camp, um, those calls were made by DSS on Thursday night and the, the kids you know, had to be removed from the camp on Friday. Meg, you point out that uh, some of these kids are are put in these camps voluntarily by their parents, but not all of them. Some of them are sent through the juvenile justice system. I, I don't know what the case was in North Carolina, but in those cases, doesn't the juvenile justice system have some sort of obligation to monitor what's going on in these camps? Not to my knowledge, no. Um, it would basically be a handoff um, because they are recognized as a, you know, a quote, treatment method. So it would then be handed off and they would get reports sometimes. Um, but really, it's just it's completely up to them. You know, I've seen a lot of reports on television, on major network television news programs about these camps. Some of them make you shudder. Others of them think you think, well, the kids are uh, uncontrollable. And when they come out of these camps, they're. They're normal human beings. They have been they have been uh, broken, perhaps like a like boot camp, but they come out as upstanding young people. Uh, that's probably not necessarily the case. But if those reports are even remotely accurate, the lead up to being taken to these camps also looks awful because in many cases, uh, the parents contact the camps. They show up on the doorstep in the middle of the night. The parents let them into their child's bedroom. They force the kid, unbeknownst to them, into a car, and off they go. The kid doesn't know anything about it. They're completely bewildered. Uh, that seems to be to be unnecessarily psycho unnecessary psychological trauma. Is it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I'm speaking as someone that was gooned. Gooned is what we call it, and it's when a transport system, a transport company is hired 
to come to the house and just basically abduct the kid. Uh, I was forced to get dressed in front of them, to go to the bathroom in front of them. And it's incredibly traumatic to not only be woken up in the middle of the night, but also have your parents know that your parents had arranged the entire thing. That feeling of abandonment is, is pretty wild. This is new news to me. I did not know that you had been a victim of one of these camps. I was, um, yeah. Uh, two. What, well, all right. Then what led that to happen? What, what did your parents, what were you doing that your parents felt they, they needed to take this step? You know, I was at that point an undiagnosed autistic. So that, there was that going on, a lot of educational challenges. I started to, you know, smoke marijuana and I tried drinking a couple of times. Really, I was just trying to fit in. And that fitting in led to me getting expelled and they just felt like they had no other option. And they hired an educational consultant, of course. And then that led me to first a lockdown treatment facility and then a therapeutic boarding school for a total of three and a half years. Oh my God. So you were drug off in the middle of the night. What yes. happened at your, during your first night at whatever camp they took you to? It was, it was horrific. Uh, so I went into a lockdown treatment facility. So these kids are really, really struggling. And it was the kind of struggle that I had never seen in my life. And it was, it was scary. There was a lot of fear. I saw kids being restrained all the time, constantly. And I would hear screams in the middle of the night. There's a quiet room. They would lock you in, um, strap you to the bed if you're not behaving. So it was like watching a horror film, to be honest, because I hadn't been around any of that stuff ever before or even witnessed it. Alan, this seems to be a growing industry. It's happening across the world, and it wouldn't be happening, I would think, if parents weren't sending their kids to these facilities voluntarily. Why is it growing? Why do so many parents feel the need to do this? Why are so many children allegedly so out of control that the parents are at their wits' end and don't know what else to do? Uh, that's, a very, that's a very complex question. Um, but the marketing for these almost assures uh, a, a perfect outcome. Um, you go there and you think, oh, this is going to be great for my child. They're going to be able to ride horses. They're going to be able to commune with nature. They're, they're going to be given the, the tools that we as parents, as you know, both parents usually working, can't give our child. We love our child, so we love them so much that that we're going to give them this so that they can be productive in, in their life. Nicole, yeah. I know you've interviewed parents and you've interviewed people at these camps and, and kids who have been through these camps, and I'm just wondering if you have found that in most cases the parents do this <clears throat> out of love, and if that's the case, what is their reaction when they find out what really happened to their child where they're in these camps? It's uh, so it's so complicated. So even saying like out of love is a complicated thing. I think, yes, all, a lot of these parents want the best for their child and these camps are expensive. So this is not an easy sacrifice for these parents. I spoke to parents who had to refinance their homes in order to pay for these camps. Yeah, I've read that they, they cost between yeah. six and thirty thousand dollars a month. Yes. And most of the time, most of the families I spoke to, their children had been through multiple camps like Meg's experience. It wasn't just a one-time shot. Um, a lot of the parents I spoke to want the best for their child and they are willing to give so much financially. It To me, it's not just the child is vulnerable. It's not just the parent is vulnerable. The entire family is vulnerable. Um, what they have to deal with for the rest of their lives if this doesn't work out. 
is intense. And um, I did see some some like success success stories in quotes because success is tricky because there's so many varying factors of why a child's there, what happened, what exact guide was working there when that child was there. But the success stories come from the parents who do sacrifice and are also doing the work that the child is also doing while they're away so that when they get back together, they have a new language, a new toolkit. There's still issues. But there isn't, but they wouldn't say that the kid is like fixed, also in quotes. So, so Meg, when, when you got out finally, uh, and I don't know how horrific your personal treatment was, except for, for what you've described already and, and the things that were going on around you and the abduction in the middle of the night to go to this camp. But when you got out, what, and you told your parents, I'm assuming that you did, what, what happened when you were in. What was their reaction? Did they regret having done this? Were they horrified? Were they were they apologetic? Apoplectic? What, what what? How did they react? So I actually left at eighteen and a half and was brainwashed uh, for pretty much fifteen years uh, because I went to a very psychologically abusive program. So it, the indoctrination principles were definitely there. Um, so my parents, for fifteen years with me, believed that it was the best thing that ever happened. So when I eventually woke up to the trauma that I had been through, I do have to preface this with, I am definitely the exception with having parents so supportive as I fortunately have been able to have. They listened to me, they apologized to me, and they they went through that grief with me. Now, I would say as far as other parents, it's a spectrum. We have parents who deny that anything they did was ever wrong. And I think there's that cognitive dissonance there of, you know, as a parent, we don't want to hurt our children. And to think that something we did hurt them is very, very hard for parents to actually own up to. And then we have parents where they have a relationship with their kid, but they just know both parties know not to talk about it. Right. And but the sad thing is, is that I would say upwards of 80 percent plus survivors don't have relationships with their parents because of the decision. So when we're talking about success stories, it's interesting because usually it's a success story that the parent reports versus the survivor. Alan, are there other options? I mean, most of these kids are described by their parents in these videos that I've seen and, and, and articles that I've read uh, that uh, as being out of control. They don't know what to do with them. There's nothing they can do. They're trying to protect their children from themselves and from others. Sometimes the children have tried to commit suicide, et cetera, and they, they don't know what else to do, so they put them in one of these facilities. Is, are, do they have any other choices? Are most of the children in these facilities really behaving beyond what an average teenager would do at least periodically, if not all the time. Again, my experience is is limited to the to the people I've represented. But uh, the, for example, the 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 young girl who died last year in in Utah um, at this facility, she wanted to go there because she wanted to get her life in order um, before she went to college. And she she was Native American, and she had the tribe that would pay for it. And so she worked with with an educational consultant and with her father, in in, in picking a place. And then she gets there, and she becomes a prisoner, and she's she's only allowed to talk to her parents uh, once a week. Um, if she says anything negative, they 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 punish her for it. Um, the other young man who was in a facility here in Utah, um, his dad had had had. Um, he had reported to the staff that his dad had object raped him because he was gay and was and was ticked off at him and they they precluded he's a kid that's going to either go to 
to Princeton or to Stanford, a brilliant kid. Um, but because he was gay, his, his dad, it was kind of a form of conversion therapy. And he was deprived of all equal protection. He, he, the, his mom hired him a lawyer. The facility wouldn't let the lawyer come in. The, they wouldn't let the rabbi come in because it was a Mormon facility. And they were using some quasi-Mormon techniques to uh, to teach him. And so th they, they don't belong there, most of in, them. In situations like that, where you can't have your cleric come in, or you can't have your own personal psychologist come in, or, uh, can you then remove your child? Can, can you not take them out? I have 20 uh, the seconds. Mother, yeah, the mother cannot, because the dad had, had, had um, prime custody of him, and so she, her hand, she had to go through the legal system, and okay. the legal system We're, failed. I want to talk about regulation and training of the people who work in these facilities when we come back at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. Nick Oxner is with us, chief investigative reporter for WBTV News, who has been reporting on the situation at the Trails Carolina Wilderness Camp for young people, troubled young people. Uh, we, had the, we had the death of a 12-year-old boy there at the beginning of this month. Meg Ackbolgate is the co-founder and CEO of Unsilenced, an organization that deals with the victims of these camps around the country. Alan Mortensen is an attorney with Mortensen and Millen in Salt Lake City. They, too, have been dealing with this. And Nicole O'Corin is a writer, a freelance writer, who has written about this for The Guardian. Uh, Nicole, some believe that these camps don't have staff that are properly trained to deal with people facing the challenges that they're confronting. And in fact, you report, quote, there is no national set training standards or background checks for employees in frontline positions at these camps. How can that be explained? I don't know. Um, <laughs> to be to put it bluntly, I just I do not know. There isn't a lot of these positions are are considered like perfect jobs for summer uh, for kids in college in the summertime. Well, I saw and, a vi I saw a Vice uh, News yeah. video interviewing a young man who had been a counselor at one of these camps. Yeah. He said, "I saw things that I thought were wrong, but I was 25 years old. I was making more money than I had ever made in my life, $18 an hour." Uh, I never graduated from high school. I only had a GED. So what do I know? Surely the state knew what they were doing and that it was right or wrong. They must be right. So you're talking about a kid who had no experience at all and no training. He said he, they didn't train him at all. Correct. And honestly, $18 an hour is a lot higher than I've heard for all the other people I've seen. It's usually about like 10 to $12 hour, um, dollars an hour. So you have people who are really passionate about this, about kids, or they've gone through this system themselves. I met some graduates who had been at a wilderness camp, who graduated from that wilderness camp, and then eventually became uh, a guide there. So no qualifications other than they'd already experienced it. So we're just perpetuating the same experience. These, these kids come into these facilities with very different yes. problems. Some are depressed, yes. some overact, some are suicidal, uh, et cetera. They're dangerous to others. They're dangerous to themselves. Yeah. They're not dangerous at all. Uh, do they 
segregate these young people in some way, or are they all thrown in together? From my experience, some camps do segregate from other, but I think that's the exception. Most of the camps kind of are like a one size fits all, but nature will heal everything is kind of the mentality. And then they'll appropriate different indigenous terms to explain the spiritual aspect of nature healing all of these problems. So one person I spoke to um, dealt with, he was a, a prime manipulator before this experience, was dealing with some antisocial behavior, goes to the camp, meets a lot of drug dealers and starts changing you know, and then those relationships continued after that camp. Um, also, he was afraid for his life during that camp. So it kind of became like a West Side Story experience where him and some other buddies teamed up against these other buddies and they were all supposed to be hiking the trails together. And it was very dangerous. No one slept at night. It's just, yep. yeah. Uh, Meg, uh, Nicole has written of campers not being given enough hygienic supplies, uh, given four pairs of underwear to last for a week and one t-shirt and one pair of pants to last for a week and they're hiking in these blisteringly hot sweaty conditions and doing other work around these camps those that are wilderness camps she writes about uh, what you just spoke about uh, young people being followed into the bathroom while they do their business by these counselors i guess presumably to make sure they don't do anything untoward or don't harm themselves and in some cases, they're not the same gender as the person going to the bathroom. Uh, she writes about a female camper who was molested and then threatened by the counselor that he would kill her if she told or would make sure that she didn't get out alive if she told. Uh, how does that compare to what you experienced, the stories that you've heard, et cetera, at these camps? Well, because I didn't go to, a, I actually didn't go to a wilderness program, so it's a little bit different. But as far as Trails Carolina, I, you know, there's several lawsuits for alleged sexual assault from Trails Carolina that's going on. Um, a few of them are from other campers that are there, the assault. And, but one of them is actually from the staff. So I am seeing a very troubling trend of that going on. Um, but as far as being watched when you're going to the bathroom and having you know, like no autonomy, that's something that is usually happening across the board in all these programs when you're on safety. And safety is when you've displayed some kind of behavior that indicates to the staff you're a harm to yourself or others, and you're watched 24-7. So that's very common in these kind of circumstances. Alan, in, in the cases that you've dealt with uh, as, as an attorney, are parents aware of these conditions? Are they aware of this treatment? When they become aware of it, do they become litigious? I mean, wh what happens here? Um, for these for these um, facilities to be successful, the parents have to stay in the dark. The parents cannot sleep at night if they knew what was really going on. And so um, the, the parents are, are, are fed propaganda and, and their child is isolated. And so, uh, you know, the, the parents are not aware of this. If they knew what was going on, they, they, would, they would actually probably turn them over to the juvenile justice system because it's a lot friendlier. Uh, Nicole writes, Alan, uh, about one camp in Utah uh, in the desert where temperatures rise to above 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the daytime and perhaps fall to 40 degrees or less at night. And the camp makes these young people hike 10 miles or more to subject them to wilderness conditions, meaning that they're deprived of showers and other modern conveniences. It's very much like what we've seen in some of these network TV reports. Uh, 
And it's also not unlike, I would think, basic training uh, in some of the military it, it, to break you so that you lose your individualness and become part of the unit, a cohesive unit. Is that, what's alleged, is that what these camps allege to the parents? This is what we're going to do. This is how it works. Yeah, that, that's the claim is that it's like going to a, a boot camp and they're going to come home as a good soldier, uh, ignoring the fact that a soldier volunteers and, and a soldier knows what he's going into wide eyes open. Um, but if they but, followed the rules of basic training, would, could these camps work or do they always cross over the line in some way? I'm, I'm sure that, that they have success stories. I, I mean, of, of kids that do, do come out and, and are successful in life. But I would, my hypothesis is, is because the, the odds are some of these kids are going to be successful anyway, given um, usually they're in there because they're very bright and very smart kids anyway. And, and, and they know how to, they know how to, to uh, see a goal and, and get it. They just need to be refocused a little bit. And so the fact that a lot of these kids come out and, and end up ha- I mean, look at Mech, she's extremely successful. Um, but it's because of what she, of her capacity and her capabilities going in, uh, she's probably delayed in her success because of these camps. There, as I understand it, there is no federal regulation, Alan, of these facilities at all. I'm curious to know why that is. And I also know that Utah, state of Utah, where you are, uh, passed some legislation a couple of years ago to control some of this. Has the situation in Utah, at least, improved at all since that law was passed? Um, I would say that, yes, the, the, the situation in Utah has improved because, uh, for example, Diamond Ranch Academy was closed and shut down because they allowed this young girl to die. Uh, finally, some of our, our state legislators are realizing, hey, this is not right, what's happening? And and so finally, someone's stepping forward and Mike McKell, Senator Mike McKell of our state legislature uh, stepped forward and put, put together a bill of rights to help these kids. And so, yes, things are improving. But, for example, Diamond Ranch Academy, it closes and they're reopening under a different name, same, same cast of characters um, and, and uh, a different name. And so we're going to have to go and, and um, regulate them through the court system. I'm, I'm assuming that, that mental health facilities have federal requirements that they have to live up to, that hospitals do as well. Why don't these places have any federal regulation, Alan? Um, because it, staggering amounts of money are being made and staggering amounts of donations are made to, to legislators. And, and that's the fact of the matter. And Nick, in North Carolina, how, are these facilities regulated at all? Well, in theory, they're regulated by the Department of Health and Human Services. That's the mechanism by which DHHS has been able to order all of the children um, out of Trails Carolina in the wake of this 12-year-old's death. Now, in practice, again, if you go back and look at the inspection records and the regulatory history, you'll see that there wasn't much regulating until, you know, nine days after a 12-year-old boy died, the second child to die at this facility. Is that because of understaffing? Is it because of negligence? Why? That would require the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Cody Kinsley, to be willing to interview with me. I've been asking for an interview for the entire month, and so far they have refused to make anyone available. 
This seems to be, as we talk about when you were on the news roundup on Fridays, this seems to be a pattern of behavior uh, at governments at various different levels in North Carolina. It doesn't serve them well, ultimately, but they don't seem to learn that, uh, that lesson. Uh, Alan Meg's organization, Unsilenced, asserts that these wilderness camps market themselves as providers of treatment, and market is the key word here. They market themselves as providers of treatment for almost every problem, and use marketing techniques similar to to multi-level schemes, which are aimed at keeping children in the program for as long as possible, with bonuses for healthcare providers who refer patients to these facilities and bonuses for the parents who then tell other parents, hey, we had a good experience here, you should try it too. Is that ethical? When it comes to your child, no. If you're selling toothpaste or, or shampoo, probably, but a multi-level marketing, which Utah is the capital of, um, is is really shameful that we're, we're multi-level marketing our children. And that's sad and pathetic. Uh, you were re- nodding in recognition of that, May. What makes Utah the, the capital <laughs> the capital of this behavior i am i am not even going to venture to guess why but um uh, it definitely is and um alan might be able to answer that a little bit better uh, we're i don't know why but somehow our culture is is amenable to this multi-level marketing on all okay. on all levels uh meg you report that and i've already referred to this you report that these programs can cost parents between somewhere six thousand or five thousand dollars to thirty thousand dollars a month and these kids stay in these facilities what's the average stay well if you're looking at wilderness program you can look up to maybe 12 weeks but these wilderness programs are just pipelines to longer placements so you're going to see kids being recommended to go to therapeutic boarding schools for many years so what are the referral fees like? Nick, I'll let you get jump in here, Nicole, but what are the referral fees like? How much are well, they? You can, see it, you can see it different. So sometimes if parents refer other parents, um, they'll get a reduction in their tuition, incentivizing them to get as many of their kids' friends to be sent into these programs. Um, but you can see it all across the board. We've found evidence of educational consultants getting kickbacks and things like that as well. So it's kind of all over. Nicole? I was just going to add to what Meg was saying. I spoke to someone who stayed in a wilderness um, camp for over six months um, because the 12-week thing kept getting moved and moved and moved because of behavioral issues. And the parents were told that if the child stayed longer, they could do it, or they they had this issue, and this is a new issue, and they could do it. And um, so up to, yeah, six months, this child experienced all the weather, the winter and the summer and the desert. When they tell the parents, if you keep them here longer because this is a new issue, is that legitimate or are they just making that up to keep them in the program longer to make more money? I don't know. I think it has a lot. I think there's two sides of it. I think that the program itself, because the programs are run by administrators who have nothing to do with psychological health or um, education. And then you will have a psychologist come and meet with the child twice a week. The psychologist might make that recommendation because the psychologist might, I don't know. I'm not going to say everyone has the worst intentions. The psychologist might really think that something might be helpful or that this is a problem. And I do think that the people that own the program do 
a lot of them I spoke to are passionate about helping children, but I do think that they see this as beneficial to them also monetarily. So I think, I think it's a mixed bag, but it does benefit them financially for sure. Meg, this whole thing sounds highly traumatic for anybody, uh, especially for a troubled young person. But even if you're not troubled, this would be traumatic. And a lot of these people report having PTSD symptoms for years after uh, this is over. And some of them say they will never get over some of the things they experienced. Um, is that the norm? Yeah, I would say that's absolutely the norm. Like we talked about, though, there are people who say they've had success stories, but that's certainly not the norm. So. Um, I would say a majority of survivors that I spoke to suffer from CPTSD, which is a little bit different than PTSD. It's more complex um, and longstanding. Uh, so, no, I will never get over what I've been through. And every survivor I know, they never get through it. They get better. They get better at handling the triggers and the things that are happening, but they never they never fully get over it. Nick, as we mentioned, all of the children at the, the Trails Carolina were removed. <clears throat> they are shut down for the time being. They're not allowed to bring in new young people. When this is all over, is all of that likely to resume or do we know? Are they done? What's the deal? We don't really know yet. Uh, the current moratorium on on participants is through uh, sometime in April. Um, and, you know, that's subject to change by DHHS. They could be permanently shut down by DHHS. And if they try to reopen in North Carolina, that would require a license and approval from DHHS. So we'll we'll see if this new posture where DHHS suddenly has started regulating Trails Carolina will continue, or if this is a one-off while the media attention and guys like me are beating down their door. Let me ask, I have 30 seconds left. Let me ask Meg, then Nicole, then Alan, should these places continue to operate? Should parents send their children there under any circumstances? 30 seconds, go, Meg. Quick. No, they should not. They should not be sending their kids here because until we can make sure everything is regulated at the same level and it's not safe. Nicole. No, there has to be a better way. Alan. No way. Wow. Okay. Uh, Alan Mortensen, attorney with Mortensen and Millen in Salt Lake City, Utah. They deal with cases like that. Nicole O'Corin is a freelance writer for The Guardian, wrote about this extensively. Meg Applegate, co-founder and CEO of Unsilenced, and Nick Oxner, executive producer of Investigations at WBTV. Thank you all for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlottetalks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at Mazda of South Charlotte.com.